And so I just want to ask you to prepare your heart for the Word of God as it comes to you um, in Daniel 1. And in Daniel 1, I just want to read uh, verses 3 to 17. I'm just going to read the inside portion of our passage today. And so this is Daniel 1, starting in verse 3. I'm going to read to verse 17. Please prepare your hearts as now God speaks to us his word. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to defi- not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, <clears throat> I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of our youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin today's sermon, there are are three words that I'd like you guys to keep in your head because these are the three words that we're going to draw out of this passage and put to use in our own spiritual lives. Um, The first word is temptation. The second word is identity. And the last word is vision. Temptation, identity, and vision. Last week, we opened up the book of Daniel, and we saw that Daniel was a book of visions. And these visions give us hope in a time of difficulty and hope in the fire, whatever your fire is. And today, we're going to see that not only um, do these visions give us hope in the fire, but these visions also give us hope and temptation to help us to rediscover identity. And so today, we're going to be getting into that. And so won't you bow your heads with me, and and let's go to the Lord and ask him for help. Lord, We know that a vision of you is what we need in order to rediscover our identity, to live in a Babylon full of temptations. And so, Father, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would be with them and that you would send your spirit to them. This is work that I can't do, that we can't do. And so we just bow our heads and ask, will you do for us? And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to your people and that your spirit will give them a vision of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, As we begin, uh, we're still kind of opening up the book of Daniel, and I'd love to give you a little bit of a history lesson just to help us situate what we're talking about and where we are in the history of Israel. In the book of Exodus, you see Moses lead the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. Most of us know about that. And he brings them into the wilderness. Now, after he brings them into the wilderness, Moses passes, and a man named Joshua takes his place. And Joshua's job is to help these people to conquer all of the other peoples who are in that land. And so Joshua goes on a conquest in the wilderness, carrying the people of Israel through the leading of God. In in about 1410 BC, he takes them into the land of Canaan and begins conquests. And now for the next three centuries, the Israelites are going to be on a mission 
to conquer peoples and to battle with peoples around them. And it's going to be a spiritual journey and a spiritual battle all the way through. Now, after all of the conquests and after they had become victorious, they were a people, but they were different from all the other nations. You see, um, when you look at the people of Israel in that time, they weren't really a nation in the sense that you would think of it. Instead, they were more like a collection of tribes. Kind of think about the Native American tribes and how the Native American tribes, if there was kind of an overlapping uh, name around them, they were more like that, the tribe of Judah. And, and the, these various different tribes, they were all together. Now, they would look at all the other nations and see, oh, we're different from the other nations. We're different from the other nations because we're not actually like a nation. We're like a collection of tribes. And that made them feel insecure because they weren't like the other nations. They weren't as organized. They didn't have a flag. They didn't have a, a king. And so they go to God and they, they go to their leaders and say, we want a king. We want a king and we want to be like the other nations because we want to be organized like them and we want to have an army like them that's connected and we want to be organized like that. And so we want a king. And so God grants them a king in Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel in 1060 BC. And now they're not like this kind of primitive collection of tribes, but rather they're an actual nation. Now they have a flag, now they have a name, now they have an organized nation that other nations can identify. Now they are, quote unquote, more of a people. Now, after Saul, David comes into power, and after Saul has established them as a nation, David comes in, and what David does is he expands that nation. David is the conquest king. He goes to, to various other nations, and uh, he conquers them, and he extends the borders of this Israel kingdom from the Egyptian desert to the south, all the way to the Euphrates in the north, and he goes to the Mediterranean Sea to um, the east, um, from the west and all the way to the desert in the east, and the kingdom expands. And so David is this conquest king. That's what he's doing. And he is a man of the sword, and he expands the kingdom. And it's kind of like this big highlight of their history. And yet, David wants to build a temple, and God says no, because he was the one who shed all this blood. He expanded the kingdom. He was a conqueror. But because of that, his hands were full of blood. And God said, you cannot build my temple. It was Solomon, his son, who was able to do it. And Solomon built the temple, which was the center of this nation now, this expanded nation that his father expanded and conquered all these other nations. And now this temple is going to be the center of all of these different nations. And yet, even though there was peace in the time of Solomon, something was rotting underneath. You know, there wasn't a lot of war in the time of Solomon. He was a peaceful king. But underneath, during a time of comfort and peace in this expanded, established nation, the people of God, something's going wrong in their hearts. And it's reflected in what's going wrong in Solomon's heart. But then after Solomon passes, the kingdom gets pretty messed up because now inside of this peace, there's all this civil unrest, social unrest. There's all this tension that's taking place inside of the nation itself. And now the nation splits in two. Inside of the nation, there is trouble because there isn't trouble from outside the nation. Inside of Israel, there's this trouble and it splits in two. And now you have two Israels. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. Now, while all this is going on, there's so much spiritual decline that's taking place in the hearts of the people. And especially when you look at the northern kingdom, you see just how wrong they are going. Idol worship is already seeping in. Something is really wrong with them as the split happens. And while all this is going on inside of Israel, there's a superpower that's arising in the middle of all of that. A superpower from the north, and that nation's name is Assyria. Assyria is growing, and they are a ruthless warrior people. Their capital is in Nineveh. And they will conquer um, the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there's two. And now the northern kingdom and this big superpower that's growing in the north, Assyria, they're going to have a lot of tensions. And in fact, Assyria is going to tax these people and is going to subjugate these people and force these people to pay tribute and honor them. And sometimes the northern kingdom misses payments. Now there's no forbearance. You know, there's no penalty fee for missing payments. There's blood. If you miss payments to Nineveh, people die. And that's what happened for years and years and years. 
The people of Israel died because they missed payments and they couldn't pay the tribute that they needed to pay tribute to the Assyrians. And so when God comes to Jonah and he tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. It is inconceivable to Jonah why of all places God would send them to Nineveh. The Assyrians are interesting people because they're a superpower who knew how to conquer and they knew that just beating uh, nations with the military was not enough. They knew that over time, if you let them keep their identity and if you didn't disturb their identity as a people, then they will rise up against you someday. They were smart. And so they had a way of interrupting that and diluting their identity so that that wouldn't happen. And the way that they did that was they uh, pushed for intermarriage. They pushed for the people of Israel to intermarry with the Syrians and other nations. And so using marriage and biology, they would over time dilute the identity of the Israelites. And that's where Samaritans came from. That's why Samaritans in the north were hated by everybody else in Israel because they were the ones who intermarried and they were mixed blood. But it wasn't just mixed blood, but it was mixed faith. You know, when when all this intermarriage happened, and that's exactly what the Assyrians wanted. That's exactly what they wanted because now the northern kingdom really has no idea who they are. Now, while all this is going on, there is a new superpower that's arising. And this new superpower is different. And this new superpower's name is Babylon. Babylon comes, and now Babylon is different from Assyria in this. Assyria is this warrior nation. I kind of imagine in my mind like Sparta almost-ish. But Babylon is different because not only are they a warrior nation, not only are they able to conquer, but they have a very strong culture. Not only are they warriors, but they're also artisans. They're also musicians. They're also uh, people who write beautiful literature. They have a very, very strong culture. And the leader of this nation was a young man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not just kind of a, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was actually a young man who was on the front lines and led armies in battle. He knew what it was like to conquer. He was actually on the front lines and he saw how you conquer a people. He learned all of that in the military and he came back. And not only was he an artisan, a musician, a royalty member, but he was also a warrior. And he knew how all this went. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to construct a superpower that was going to be even greater than Assyria. In fact, they would conquer Assyria. And along with Assyria, they knew that when you conquer a people, you can't just trap them and say, you guys are ours. That never works in history, does it? Over time, what happens? These people rediscover their identity and rise back up. And whoever is the superpower that's trying to control them, whether it happened in India or various different places, there's always problems. And so Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon, they had a way of disrupting identity, and it was different from the Assyrians. They didn't use biology and marriage, but they used brainwashing. They used brainwashing. Let's read verses 3 to 4. This is what we see in our text now as we finally land on our passage today. That's, this is what we're seeing happen in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, <clears throat> to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another way of saying Babylon. You see, the Assyrians mixed in through marriage and diluted their identity by intermarrying. The Babylonians took the most influential families, grabbed the young people of those families, the influential royal people of that nation, grabbed the young people while their minds were still malleable and able to be formed, brought them into the college and university of Babylon, and they would brainwash them. That was their tactic. That was their strategy. Because they knew it wasn't enough just to conquer people. You had to change their identities in order for that conquest to hold. 
or else you have big trouble on your hands. What happens is he, they bring them into Babylon. They train them. And then after they train them, they send them back into Israel. They put them into posts and positions of power. And now all of Israel are looking at these amazing young people with incredible training. And they all follow these people. And the entire nation gets brainwashed. And now Babylon has actually taken that nation over. That's what they do. And when we look at verses 6 to 7, we see this happening now on the ground level with actual people that we meet. Uh, Verse 6 to 7, this is what happens. You see how Babylon begins to re-identify these young people. In verse 6, it says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. You know, we think a lot about what we're going to name our kids when we have kids. You know, we think about it all the time. We go through every single name. Why? Because it's such an important thing. And we feel it viscerally, right? We feel it viscerally that, oh, this is important, what we name them. And what we try to do is we load up our hopes oftentimes into these names and we also almost try to endow them with an identity through this name. And so that's why, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters that we know choose names for their children and are named themselves after names like Isaiah, Hannah, Samuel, Mary, Joseph, Paul. Ruth, Moses, Christian. What are their parents trying to do? Their parents are trying to endow them with a biblical hope, with a hope that that might have some impact on them and that the narrative of their lives would in some way mirror the narrative of the name that they found in the Bible. But now Babylon is reversing all that. You see, Daniel and his friends, they had names that meant things like, God is my judge. Who is like our God? God is my helper. Those are their names. Pretty amazing names, right? Some of you guys have the same names. Well, not any of them except Daniel, actually. But God is my judge is Daniel's name. And that's such a powerful name. Now, what Babylon is trying to do is rename them. And it's going to be a powerful process of trying to do that. And they bring them into the College of Babylon. I want to ask you college students, when you go to college, what are you learning that you didn't intend to learn in that college. Now, I know that you went there to learn biology and to learn to be a law student and to be a medical student and learn accounting, but what else are you picking up from the culture of your college that you didn't mean to pick up from Babylon? You meant to just get that training, but what else are you picking up along the way? Because this is not anything new. This is what Babylon has always been doing throughout time. You see, Babylon knows and Nebuchadnezzar knew that over time, that if you did things to influence them, then it would seep in from the outside to the inside. At the beginning, they're just wearing Babylonian clothes. People are calling them new Babylonian names. And maybe it doesn't seep in. But Nebuchadnezzar knew that if you put them through a very strategic process of re-identifying them, then all this outside stuff will eventually become inside stuff. And as we look at their story in Babylon, we have to ask ourselves, what is your functional identity? What are the things that Babylon has put into you as you've lived here? Who are you really? What do you actually hope in? What seeped into your heart? What treasures do you actually hold in your heart? Who do you think you are actually? If I was able to listen to your thoughts throughout the week and I didn't know if you were a Christian or not, if I took that evidence of the things that you actually hoped in, the things that you actually take pleasure in, the things that you look forward to, would I conclude that you are an eternal person from the kingdom, citizenship? You see, because Babylon is always trying to re-identify you and sometimes Babylon is very successful. Because the core goal is to change our identity. And once our identity can be reached, then temptation, it becomes something that is easier to get us um, into. 
That was identity. And now I want to show you the process of changing our identity into getting us tempted to be like Babylon. Temptation in Babylon, uh, verse 5. It says this, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. They were being strategically re-identified so that they could be tempted and so that they could do the bidding of Babylon. That's the whole point here, right? Now, the strategic process that Nebuchadnezzar puts them through is very helpful because for us, it's actually the same process that we experience in 2020. And the three things that we see them going through are isolation, indulgence, and indoctrination. Slowly, one by one, this is what happens. And now let me take you through all three of them. First, they are isolated. They're taken away from their people, right? They're taken away from all the people that gives them, give them the normality of God's presence. They're taken away and isolated from them. So even though they used to, are so used to hearing the songs of Yahweh and talking about God and talking about worship, they're totally isolated from that so that they are put into a new normal. And Babylon does that because Babylon knows that there's strength in numbers. There's strength in community. There's strength in being with brothers and sisters. You know and I know people who have left the Christian community and are thinking in ways that are way different than the way that they used to think when they were in Christian community. Babylon knows that there's strength in numbers. And Babylon knows that there's power to community. First thing that they do is isolate. And brothers and sisters, this is still what happens to us. Do you live in isolation? And I don't just mean, you know, being quarantined and things like that, but what are the things in your life that you isolate from the Christian community? What are the things that you would never tell anybody in the Christian community? You don't have a single name or soul that you would share that with ever, ever, ever. Whatever that thing is, it's a foothold for the devil to grab. Because whatever is an isolation from gospel community is the opening in your armor. Babylon isolates first. Not, and you know, for us, it isn't a forced isolation. So why do we get isolated? I think that one of the things is that isolation preys on our pride. You know that part, part of you that says, I don't need anybody. You know, I don't need anybody. I'm a good Christian on my own. I don't need anybody. I think isolation preys on that pride. Because it's already inside of us. And Babylon comes along and says, yeah, you don't. You don't need anybody. You can be a Christian all by yourself. Babylon isolates first. And then after isolation, the second part of the strategic process to re-identify us is indulgence. Indulgence. Nebuchadnezzar took these men and gave them the best. The best. The best of food. They probably ate foods that they've never seen before. I can imagine moments that these young men would eat things off of the king's table and say, oh my gosh, what is that? Right? What is that? And it's important to indulge in order to change their identity because young men are very resistant sometimes. Young men are strong. Young men are courageous. Young men, sometimes to their detriment, are a little bit hard-headed. It's very hard to retrain young men sometimes. It's hard to beat them down because you know what? One thing that young guys going for, have going for them oftentimes is their boldness. And so instead of beating them down, you allure them. You lavish them. And that takes us to a truth that we have to know in Babylon. Sometimes in Babylon, we're not only tested by fire and trials, but in Babylon, we're often tested by temptation, by opportunities, by the things that Babylon can offer to you, not just the stuff that they could take away from you, but we're tested by what Babylon can offer to you because Babylon knows that if Babylon can offer things to you and lavish you and allure you, what happens is Babylon can create inside of your heart New appetites, new appetites that come from Babylon, that if that appetite is taken care of and nourished, that appetite can be your chains. 
These guys were eating stuff that they've never eaten before. And if you can help them to habituate to that appetite, to get used to that appetite, to get strongly attached to the things of Babylon's table, then you have them chained forever. You see, we have to watch our appetites, brothers and sisters. If they got addicted to success of Babylon, that Babylon could ask them to do anything to maintain that success. If they got addicted to the security and the safety of the king's court, then Babylon can ask anything of them as long as they give them that safety and security. If Babylon can help them to get addicted to the respect that comes from being one of the men chosen, then they can ask anything of these young men to maintain that respect. They isolate and then they indulge. And finally, after they've broken them down with indulging them and lavishing them, now they are much more open to being indoctrinated. They are much more open to being indoctrinated. Look at verse 4 with me. It says this. They were endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's court and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. You see, once they were isolated and indoctrinated, now you can intentionally give them training. Now, I just want to focus in on one of the things that uh, was given to them in Babylon, and that's the literature of Babylon. The literature of the Babylon, uh, of Babylonians. It's so interesting, right, that they weren't just straight indoctrinated with principles, but rather they were given literature and stories instead. It's another genius tactic of Babylon. Because stories and songs and music, these things bring to us principles and worldviews, but in a Trojan horse. Every story that we watch on Disney, every story that we watch in the movies, every music album that we listen from beginning to end has principles inside and has worldviews inside. And I'm not as familiar, but I'm sure even video games have some sort of worldview attached to it. There are ways to sneak in principles into a person's heart. That's why it is important, brothers and sisters, that we watch very carefully what we allow to just seep in without any kind of filter. If we're not thinking about what we're absorbing, if we're not thinking about what our children are absorbing, and it doesn't always have to be profanity and sexuality and these things that we're watching out for those things, we're always on guard for that kind of stuff, but we let in all sorts of worldviews that come into our children's hearts about what's what. We introduce them to stories and heroes and heroes dying for things and that teaches them what's worth dying for. That's why Jesus said to us, his people, he said, your eyes are the lamp of your body. He says that your eyes are the lamp of your body. What does he mean by that? He says, light comes in. Things come into you. Light comes into your soul. Your eyes are the lamp of your body. And then he says, and then if that light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying what you take in, that's the lamp of your body. Now you are the light of the world, right? You are the light of the world, shining your light into this world. If the things that come into your brain and your sensibilities and your heart, that darkens you, the light of the world, oh my goodness, how great is that darkness. If the stories of Babylon can darken your soul, and you are the light of the world, and it makes you dark, how great is that darkness? We, we don't sometimes know what we're learning and being indoctrinated with in this world. That's why Andrew Fletcher, he wrote, let me write the songs of a nation. He said, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. He knew how it works. He knew that generations of young people don't go through the laws of a nation. <laughs> They're indoctrinated through the songs and the stories. And he says, let me just write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes the laws. 
Stories that we take in tell us about what's worth fighting for, about what's beautiful and what's ugly, about who's important and who's not. We, live, we learn love from our novels. We learn what masculinity is from movie figures. It's in us, you know. And if you check your soul, it's in you. That's why jokes that you learned from Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld resonate with you, and you could pull them out much more easily than you can a Bible verse you memorized at VBS. Because it marinates inside of you. You see, they indoctrinated them with the literature of Babylon. And through this process, they were able to reform their identities. And they created them to be different people on the inside. It wasn't just the outside stuff. It wasn't the clothing and the names, but all of it. Nebuchadnezzar knew that if he did it right and in the right order, then he can break down even bold young men to become Babylonians in their hearts. You see, that identity... Reformation is a big part of why we are so tempted by the allurements of this world. Because our identities have been shaped by the world's allurements, we are much more prone to the temptations that the world has to offer us. I think about um, Blood Diamond, and I don't know if how many of you have seen the movie Blood Diamond, but there's so much to that movie. But I just, I just want to talk about one little storyline um, in that movie, Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond is this uh, movie bringing attention to the, the diamond trade and how it, it takes advantage of the mis- most disadvantaged people. In that story, there's a man and his family from Sierra Leone. Um, he's a man, his name is Solomon, Solomon Bandy. He's got three kids, beautiful family, he works hard. And his son, who is his oldest son, uh, his name is Dia, Dia Vandy. And Dia's a little boy, and he's good, and he's smart, and, and he wants to grow up to be a doctor, and he loves school, and he has this intimate relationship with his dad. And his dad is a good father. He's a good dad. As difficult as it is in Sierra Leone, he is a good father. But what happens is, inside of their country, there's a civil war. People are at war with each other, and people are dying by the hundreds. And there's a warlord who comes into their village and destroys the village and captures Solomon's son, Diavandi. And he captures the son, and he's, his intention is to put him to service for the war, warlord in the revolution. And so what he does is he isolates him from his family, and then he indulges him by feeding him. And then he indoctrinates him through his, uh, through his generals and his lieutenants. In fact, one of the trainers, one of the lieutenants is shouting at these young boys, all these young boys who have been kidnapped from their parents, and they're trying to reform their minds. The trainer says to them, your mothers and fathers are dead. Your brothers and sisters are dead. You are dead too. But you will be reborn with us. We are your family now. And during this process of indoctrination, Dia, before he knows it, has had his eyes covered and he's already shot and killed a man in the process of being reformed. Now he's in shock because he's a little boy and he would never imagine that he would kill a person and he's crying inside of his bed and he's so upset and shocked and doesn't know what to feel but then the warlord walks into his bedroom and he comes in with a softness And he says to this young man, he says, Dia, I know it's hard to be a man. But you are a soldier of the revolution now. And whatever you need, shelter, food, guns, anything. And he puts his hand on little Dia's face and he says to him, I will take care of you. I will take care of you. And he renames him and he says, you, Dia, are now called boss man. That's your new identity, and I'll take care of you. He's taken him through Babylon's process of reforming his identity, and now this young boy, Dia, is dependent on this warlord and not his father any longer. This is the process of Babylon. We see it in Sierra Leone. We see it in Babylon. We see it as pimps do this to young women to make them into prostitutes. It's the exact same manipulation process. But I have news for you, brothers and sisters. In some ways, this also happens to us. 
And it seems far more innocuous than what we see in Sierra Leone or these other examples, but in some ways this is also happening to us as we live in Babylon. But as we open up the book of Daniel, there is a young man who takes a stand against it. And he rediscovers who he is through a vision of God. Let's read verse 8 together and go into our last point. Um, Daniel, um, he takes a stand here. Let's read verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He goes to the chief of the eunuchs. Now, he doesn't demand this, but he asks this. He asks not to partake in the food and wine of the king. Now, a lot of things have come out of this. And um, if you ask me, why did he refuse the food and wine? The actual, like, objective evidence of why the food and wine, I'm not exactly sure. Now, there probably it's food and wine that's been offered to idols. That's probably obvious, right? It's not kosher the way that he's used to eating. But why he drew the line there, I'm not sure. Because he said yes to the education. He said yes to the bed in the kingdom. He said yes to Babylon's protection. He said yes to all these different things. But for the food and wine, he drew a line. Why the food and wine? I'm not exactly sure. Just honestly. He could have drew the line in many different places, but he drew the line with the food and the wine. I don't think the point is to try to discover why the food and the wine. I know that like there's a diet that came out of this, right? The Daniel diet. And there's try, people trying to figure out what's so special about the food and the vegetables that he ate and why that gave him powers. It didn't. It's not about the food. Daniel drew a line because he had to protect his identity and he had to draw the line somewhere. All of us living in Babylon, we can't draw the line every place. But you have to draw lines someplace because your identity is created by distinctions and you can't draw a line every place. You have to live here and you have to flourish here and not only that, as we read in Jeremiah 29, you have to seek the peace of the city. But you do have to draw your line somewhere to say that this is my identity and this is what uh, Daniel is doing here. He's going to be set apart and not identified as a man who has been provided for by Babylon. That's not who he's going to be. He's going to be a young man who's going to be provided for by Yahweh the king. And yes, he's in Babylon. And yes, he has to thrive in Babylon. And he has to be a service of Babylon. But he will not be identified as someone that has been provided for by Babylon. That's not who he is. He will not be a total slave. And I just want to tell you, uh, for all of us who, who live in this world, we have to meditate on where our lines are. I can't give a blanket statement to say that all of you need to draw a line here. It's complicated. It's nuanced. And your lives are all unique and, and layers of complexity. But you have to draw the line somewhere and draw it early. Draw it early. If you got a new job, I encourage you, don't wait to plant your flag in the office and tell people that you are a follower of Jesus. Plant your flag early. If you're getting into a new relationship, don't wait. Plant your boundaries early. Sinclair Ferguson has this quote from his commentary, and it's supposed to be a commentary, not really a pastoral uh, letter, but I, I just think he can't help himself. This is what he writes here in, in, the, in the commentary. He says, always take the first opportunity to show yourself a decided Christian. It may not be easy, but the fact of the matter is that no easier opportunity will present itself. The second opportunity is always more difficult if the first has been refused. Whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our marriages, whether you have been raising children and you have been raising your children like children of Babylon. Planting your flag early. You see, Daniel is making a stand about identity. And that stand on identity is going to help him with the temptations that come along with living in Babylon. But he has to uphold his identity as someone who is upheld by God and not by Nebuchadnezzar's fine table. It's a battle of identity and unseen things. Brothers and sisters, if we don't understand that our identity is tied very closely with temptation, then we will never have the resources to have a battle against temptation that's victorious over time. 
Think about Dia in Sierra Leone. You think if he just kept on uh, refusing the, the different uh, things that the warlord asked of him that he would be successful? No, there needs to be something far more radical that takes place in his heart. He can't just keep saying no, 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 if he believes that he is a son of the revolution. If he actually believes that he is the warlord's son, he's never going to be able to do that. Something far more radical has to happen, and it must happen for you and me at the level of identity. Who are we really? Who's providing for us? Who is giving us the daily bread that we need to survive in Babylon? Those are the identity questions, core level questions that we need to have firm in order for us to actually resist temptation. Now at this point is when many times we hear the lesson of the sermon, which is often now, go out and be like Daniel. And yeah, go be like Daniel. Go do this in your lives, I encourage you. But the question is how? Not only how, what if I didn't? What if I failed? What if I failed for years and years and years? How do I come back? And where's my power to do this? Go and be like Daniel? I'm not like Daniel. I know I'm not like Daniel. So how do I do this? The way we actually do this, brothers and sisters, is not just this push, this rah-rah thing from the pulpit that says, go and do this. No. Brothers and sisters, that'll never work. In order for us to do this, we need to see a vision of the grace of God. The grace of God that identifies us again in who he is. If you don't do that work, you can rah-rah all you want, but you'll never get there. We need to find a vision in God again. We need to have a vision of who God is again. That's why Daniel could do this, because he had a vision of God that was bigger than Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a vision of God that made him confident that God would provide for him even if he ate vegetables and water. It says that at the end, not only was he healthy, but he was fatter. How does that make sense? Have you ever eaten just vegetables and gained weight? This is not a health lesson. He ate veggies and water, drank water, and he got fatter. <laughs> That's not something that he did. That's not a diet plan that made him gain weight. That is the provision of God. The provision of God to do something illogical in his life. And in order for us to find that provision of God, we need a vision of God again as our father. The culminating scene of Blood Diamond um, after Solomon Vandy and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, I forget his name, but they've gone through this entire story of finding this diamond and escaping their captors, and they're almost at the end of this journey, and they're almost at the end of um, evading all these people who are trying to kill them, and now Solomon Vandy, after losing his son for the entire movie, has finally found his son again. But after finding his son, something surprising is happening in that moment. His son doesn't come to embrace him, but to Solomon's shock and disbelief, his son is pointing a gun to his head, waiting to kill his own father. And that's because he's lost. The boy is totally lost. He's scared and brainwashed. He forgot totally who he is. When he looks at his dad, he sees an enemy of the revolution. And he sees himself as a soldier of the revolution. He's been totally brainwashed, this little kid. And Solomon, he can't believe it because he's looking at his little boy, pointing this gun at him. And he says, Dia, what are you doing? And he raises his hands in the air and surrender. And he begins to look at his son in the eyes. And he looks at his son, and this is the script, this powerful script that comes to bring us into this moment between father and son. He looks at his son and he says this, he says, Dia, look at me. You are Dia Vandy of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy. You love soccer and you love school. And your mother loves you very much. And she waits by the fire every day, making plantains and red palm stew with your sister and our new baby. You see, he's saying, don't you remember who you are? 
And he keeps walking closer to him and now there's tears falling down Solomon's face and Dia's face. And as he goes closer to him, he says to him, I know they made you do bad things. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I, I am your father. I am your father who loves you and you will go home with me and you will be my son. And at that moment, um, Dia falls into his father's arms because he's been lost a long time and he totally forgot who he was. He believed he was the son of the revolution and he forgot that he was Solomon's little boy. And in that moment, he falls into Solomon's arms and he regains his identity. Brothers and sisters, you have to see how your identity and the temptations that are in your life, you have to see how they're linked. You must see how they're linked. You must see that you have to rediscover your identity in order to resist temptation. You see, Dia had to remember that he was loved. He says, you are Dia Vandi of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy. Your mother loves you so much, and I know you've done bad things, but I'm your father and I love you, and you're gonna come home with me. I will be your father, and you will be my son. Is that not the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that not the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives today? We've abandoned the father, we've been brainwashed in Babylon, and all the desires of Babylon have now been brainwashed inside of us. We love Babylon, and the sins of Babylon live in our memory as if they're tattooed on our bodies. And as Jesus Christ comes into this world, God the Father says through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, he comes to us in grace, and he says to us that he knows us by name. I know you by name. And even though you've lost yourself in this world, and I know you've done bad things. I know that you've done bad things. But in my son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done, you are not a bad man. You are not a bad woman. You are not a bad person. In the person of Jesus Christ, as his blood washes over you, my son, my daughter, you are not evil. You are righteous. And you're my son. And you're my daughter and I'm gonna take you home, and we will be together. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order for us to live in Babylon, we need a vision of that again. We need a vision with the Father, just as Dia and Solomon locked eyes in that scene, we need to lock eyes with our Father who reminds us of who we are and the person of Jesus Christ. You are loved. You don't need to bow down to Babylon. Babylon is not your provider. You are not your job. You are not your children. You are not any of these things. You are my son, and you are my daughter, and I will take care of you. Today, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of that again, because only in rediscovering that identity can we look back at the allurements and look back at the manipulations of this world and look back at the temptations of this world, and we see right through them. Can you imagine Dia, after that moment, going back to the warlord's tent and the warlord trying to allure him again? And he probably looks at him and says, look, it doesn't work anymore. My eyes are opened. I see right through it. That's power. And that's power of finding identity back in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we need to deal with temptation. That's how we need to live in Babylon. We need visions of God once more. That's what our worship is. Every time we gather for worship service, we come together for a vision of God. We hear from God. We lock eyes with our Father once more. We hear the gospel that identifies us again, and we say, ah, oh, that's right, I'm not my job. That's right, I'm not that internship. I'm not my grades. I'm not what my children are doing. I'm not Babylon. I remember now that I am a son of God. I remember now that I am a daughter of who he is. That's what our worship service is, brothers and sisters. That's how important it is to have a vision of him week by week together as we look at him. And I wanna ask you, how has your worship life been in the midst of COVID-19?
How has your devotional life been in the midst of COVID-19? Because if we don't have visions of who he is, about who we are, then we can't rediscover our identity to stand in the midst of temptation. But when we discover a vision of God, again, he re-identifies us in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you go back out there in Babylon, you can see through all that they're trying to do to you. That's my prayer for us as we enter into the book of Daniel. And I pray that even today, that this would be a vision of God for you. Let's go to him in prayer together. Let's go to our Father now. And um, we all need to have this eye-to-eye contact with our Father as he calls us out of all the ways that Babylon is trying to isolate us and indulge us and indoctrinate us, we need to go back to him and we need to see a vision of our identity once more. So I just want to give you a minute with your father. Have the moment and listen to him say to you, I know you've gone astray, but in the person of Jesus Christ, you are mine. Babylon does not keep you alive. Let's go to him and and rediscover our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgive us if we've been living in Babylon and this whole time we thought we were Babylonian. That the values of this world, the allurements of this world have told us who we are, why we're valuable, our worldview. Father, honestly, as we look inside our hearts right now, we see, oh my goodness, where did all these chains come from? Because they've been put on us through a very strategic process by the spiritual realm to bring us into a place of slavery. And Father, we pray that you would give us an eye-to-eye vision with our Father once more. I pray that release your captives, O God. Release captives in this room, release captives at home as they come to see you again so that they can look up and understand that you are their Father and that you are the one who provides for everything that they need and you identify them, I pray, help them to rediscover them. And once you provide freedom for captives today. And so Father, we pray that together we would have a vision of you in our worship and that vision of you would re-identify us and help us to go back out now with power to see through the allurements of Babylon. And so Father, give us a powerful experience of your gospel today. And in Jesus' name we pray. 